Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET on this really wonderful spring Friday. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, I'm really glad you have decided to join us. There has been a lot of talk, of course, over the last year about how to reform law enforcement here in America. The murder of George Floyd sparked a wave of protests that swept across the country, and people began calling for a real reckoning with what law enforcement looks like in our country. But we've not seen the kind of widespread actions taken to address systemic racism or police brutality that so many Americans are demanding. But there's a new initiative here in Michigan that wants to change that, and it's putting money and resources behind those efforts. The Community Policing Innovations Initiative is working to provide guidance and support for communities that want to change the way policing and public safety services are provided. It announced this week that it's providing $200,000 to support local public safety departments to address issues in police practices, in systems, and in services. The initiative's chair is someone who's really familiar to our audience here and somebody who knows an awful lot about law enforcement and the law. Barb McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan's Law School. She's a former U.S. attorney for Southeast Michigan, and she is the chair of the Community Policing Innovations Initiative. She joins us now to talk about this effort and what it aims to accomplish. Barb, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Good morning. Great to be with you. Yes. So let's talk about where this initiative comes from, whose idea this was, and how it came about. Well, I think this comes from a yearning that so many of us have to do something to address systemic problems we have in our police departments nationwide. I think we all uh, have seen just too many incidents, and I think that the George Floyd tragedy was kind of the one that left everybody feeling like we've got to do something. You know, we, we, we clearly have some work to do. And so the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan and the Hudson Weber Foundation came together to uh, fund this grant program, raise some funds, additional funds from the Balmer Group and Oakland County, which is matching some funds for communities in Oakland County, uh, to address system-wide policing disparities, things relating to use of force, um, data about who gets stopped, disparate treatment, uh, history and reconciliation. And um, there's a lot of work to be done. And so I think it's wonderful that some of these communities are going to start that effort so that they can be pilots and models for other departments. And so let's talk specifically about the kinds of things this $200,000 commitment could accomplish for uh, for policing agencies. Yeah, so the grants uh, suggest a, a number of different areas and topics that can be reviewed and, and, and used for the grant funds. Um, and the ones that have been selected in this first round, five communities, Canton, Detroit, Dearbo- Dearborn, Inkster and Farmington and Farmington Hills together. And the things that they want to do with their funding are, you know, really interesting ideas. Um, in Inkster, for example, they want to hire a social worker and have social workers respond to certain incidents instead of sending police in when there is an issue involving a mental health crisis or an addiction crisis, for example. Having a social worker on the scene to help address that situation and perhaps de-escalate tensions so that we don't have a tragic and violent situation. Um, Two of the communities, Dearborn and Detroit, are going to use their grants for data collection. They want to have a better understanding 
about how uh, the community perceives police resources through surveys. They each do a lot of community summit work and community engagement, but they want to have actual data as opposed to relying merely on anecdotes about when the police did something well or something poorly. They want to see what data they have for uh, genuine uh, treatment of, of of disparate treatment and see if that's a problem. And if so, how to address it. You know, only with clear information can they begin to address it. So these are some of the projects that the groups are working on. And it's very exciting. The grants will provide them with the ability to uh, develop an action plan, to conduct the training necessary to be successful, and then um, some abilities to measure their success. And the initiative is focusing on these five areas of law enforcement uh, practices. But but I want to I want to take uh, just a minute to emphasize one of the things you were just talking about. So. A lot of people are very skeptical, I think, about the efforts to reform police. They don't believe that it's going to be really different than before. But what you just talked about with the Inkster Police Department talking about having a social worker go with police to uh, crisis uh, crisis incidents, uh, working with police on how to deal with, uh, you know, uh, people's people's problems and their issues as opposed to just responding uh, to incidents. That is a fundamental shift, I think, in the way that we think about police and the role that they play in our society. And I think it's really important to to point out that that's at the heart of what you guys are talking about. This is not window dressing. This is not uh, just additional training, quote unquote, for police officers. This is really encouraging people to do something very different. Yeah, the word innovations is in the title of the grant program, and I think the communities that have been selected to receive the grant opportunities are those who are going to try something that's a little bit different. And you know, if it works, perhaps it can be a model for other police departments in southeast Michigan or even around the country. I, I, I think that you know, people sometimes... I think, attribute um, a lot of bad motives to police officers. And, of course, from time to time, there are some who abuse their position of trust and their power. But largely, we have police departments who go out and do you know, really hard work. Uh, they are the first to the scene of a fatal car crash. They show up at murder scenes. They show up at the home where a child is being abused. You know, these are hard jobs, and sometimes one size doesn't fit all. And so if there are better ways to address these problems... Uh, this is a chance to experiment with some of those kinds of things and see if we can figure out a better way to keep people safe without ending in tragedy. Mm. Uh, and that is one of the the areas, uh, the five areas that, that, that you guys are focusing on, this reimagining public safety uh, that, that, that we were just talking about. But I also want to talk about some of the other, uh, the, some of the other areas, and especially the last area that you guys are focusing on. It's truth and reconciliation. It's a phrase that has powerful meaning around the globe. Uh, there, we've seen lots of efforts in many countries to have uh, truth and reconciliation commissions and then all kinds of change in societies as, as a result. What do you imagine it means here in the context of policing? Well, this is one of the things that um, Canton and Farmington Hills are sort of looking at, bringing people together from the community to address some of uh, the history of policing in those communities. 
Um, you know, I think some of these communities, too, that have changing demographics where we now have more people of color in those communities, um, sometimes police officers themselves are unaware of the history of pain and trauma experienced by some of their own citizens. You know, there's a phrase, uh, Stephen, you probably heard um, that when you're a fish, you don't know you're swimming in water. I think if you're a well-intentioned police officer and you show up to work every day and you just want to do your job, perhaps it's difficult to understand that not everybody sees the police the way you do. If your history with policing has been pulled over and stopped just for driving while black or, you know, being hassled as a kid just for standing on the street corner, you may have a negative impression of police officers that's very different from the impression police officers have of themselves who grew up with officer-friendly coming to their school. And so to hear those stories um, about that pain gives police officers an opportunity, I think, to have a better understanding of the people that they're dealing with in their community and a better ability to be responsive to their needs. And I, I think also by, by listening and airing those uh, experiences, we can have some reconciliation with, with some of the pain and history that has been caused at the hands of police officers. So I think that's the goal in some of those communities. And all of these uh, projects, all of these grantees are partnering with community partners, community groups, so that this is truly community-led policing efforts, not just the police, uh, you know, pushing down. It is partnering, uh, you know, recognizing that police officers are part of the community and not just an occupying force in a, in a war zone. Hmm. I'm talking with Barb McQuaid, a University of Michigan law professor and former U.S. attorney for this Eastern District of Michigan. We're talking about a new initiative statewide to help local police departments reimagine policing, reform policing, really change the way that police officers interact with their communities. It's called the Community Policing Innovations Initiative. Uh, If you would like to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what the most important things you believe need to happen are to address police brutality and racism in law enforcement in this country. Are you someone who subscribes to the idea of defunding the police, a phrase that has taken off since George Floyd's murder last year in Minneapolis? Uh, Are you someone who thinks there needs to be major reconstruction of police departments? literally stripping them down to nothing and and rebuilding them in a really different fashion. Uh, Is there anything short of that that you think might actually make a difference? Uh, We also want to hear from you if that's what you believe. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Barb, I want to put that question to you as well. This, uh, um, this, this call to defund the police, uh, an activist call to defund the police. And, and I'm always really careful when I talk about that because I think uh, there's the slogan that's being used and then there is the, the, the sort of policy backing of, of that slogan, and they're really different. Uh, and I think it's important to note that difference and say people aren't really talking about absolutely defunding the police. They are talking about shifting dollars, though, and spending them in a different way. Uh, how does this initiative kind of take into account this, this narrative, this, this idea of defunding the police? Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think that that phrase has been used a bit as a wedge issue to suggest that there are some who want to completely eliminate the police. I suppose there are some who would favor uh, that, but I don't think that's a a, a serious part of the dialogue. But I do think that um, 
thinking about how we allocate our public safety dollars is part of what this initiative is about. You know, in the first instance, um, it is providing funding, so more funding for police. But it's not just police. It's also for the community partners who are involved in, in giving them the freedom to experiment in doing some other things. You know, as we had mentioned, the, the idea by Inkster of let's see what happens when we use social workers to try to de-escalate situations involving people with mental health issues or addiction issues or youth, you know, experiencing trauma rather than sending in someone with badges and guns, um, is it perhaps more appropriate to try to talk with them and, and calm them down before we do that with someone who has the training, uh, specialized training, to be able to address that situation? And if we're successful in Inkster, maybe other communities start trying it as well. Or some of these community dialogues, if building a trusted rapport with community can have the effect of making the police more effective because now people are more inclined to call when they have tips, uh, when the police have legitimacy, um, they're more embraced by the community. People report crimes, um, and that can lead to solving crimes and reducing crimes uh, because it has a deterrent effect. If that's successful, then maybe we see uh, a, a reallocation of funding instead of um, buying a new tank or uh, military-grade equipment for our police departments. Maybe instead we use that uh, that funding to add a social worker or two. But um, it may be that change comes subtly and slowly, but I think when you see success, others will want to replicate it because it's clear that the way we're doing things right now isn't working. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, let's go first to Terry from Metro Detroit. And that is not uh, his real name. That's uh, a pseudonym that we're giving him because he's a police officer. He's a little nervous about uh, speaking out on this issue. But Terry, go ahead. Well, here's the deal, guys. These cities are using their police departments to pad their budgets, which is why we have an inordinate, I'm screwing up the word, amount of traffic stops. And therefore, we're generating revenue for the cities. And it keeps, that's the only way it keeps us out of our lieutenant's offices and getting reprimanded. Hmm. So we have to figure out a different way for these cities to fund themselves. Because these cities mostly, with high amounts of, of citations, are using their police departments to pad their budgets. The problem is, when we're doing this, we're, using, we're looking for vehicles normally that are in poor repair. Unfortunately, who drives that? Those people who are of low means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Therefore, ends up putting them in the spotlight in a bad, bad place. So the states need to do better sharing of the tax revenues in order to fund the cities. The cities need to better allocate their money. And you know what? The idea of using a social worker a mental disturbance versus a police officer is going to have way better outcomes. Hmm. So, 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 Terry, before... Yeah, Terry, before I have uh, uh, Barb McQuaid respond to what you're saying, you're, you're an officer here in Metro Detroit. Do you, do you feel that pressure to, to, to generate revenue for the city that you serve? Yeah, and I, I, I'm, I'm constantly in trouble for it. So, but that's okay. I'll take that trouble. Hmm. Uh, uh, Terry, I really, really appreciate uh, uh, the call and the thoughts, and and, uh, it's a very unvarnished look uh, from inside uh, uh, your experience as a police officer. Barb, this is something that people 
talk about as one of the, the, the kinds of things that goes on, especially in, I think, suburban uh, police departments here in Metro Detroit. How, how might this initiative address something like that? Yeah, I really appreciate the call, Terry. It's uh, it's important to hear candidly um, the the reality of of government budgets these days. This very issue was one of the key findings of the Department of Justice's investigation in Ferguson, Missouri, where they went in after um, the shooting of Michael Brown to examine police practices in that community and found that they were really using uh, their municipal court system as a revenue generating source. Uh, because they were strapped for cash. But the, the result of that is you put police in a very difficult situation um, and create a lot of tension between community and police by putting these demands on police officers, which really is, is not fair to the officer and has a corrosive effect on the community and on the trust they have. And so if we want to have effective policing, we have to pay for it. I, I think that we have been sold a bill of goods in this country in the last 40 years that we can have nice things without paying for it. And that's just fantasy. If we want to have the kind of community uh, where people are safe and we have effective policing, effective public safety, we need to pay for it. And we can't expect them. You know, it's the same thing with asset forfeiture funds. A big chunk of police budgets come from asset forfeiture funds. So you create incentives for police officers to be bounty hunters. Uh, certainly there is room for asset forfeiture when it is ill-gotten gain and the fruits of criminal activity. But uh, you know, some of the uh, the stops that are done are done very aggressively for the purpose of uh, criminal forfeiture and generating fines and fees. And, and that really shouldn't be the business of the police department. And so, um, you know, grant programs like this by providing funding perhaps can be liberating to police departments who otherwise wouldn't have the funds to be able to do the kinds of experimenting that these five departments are going to do. Uh, so uh, in addition to the $200,000 that has been issued in this first round, Stephen, there's going to be another round for other yeah. departments who want to get involved and pitch their own proposals. Um, another $1.5 million um, has been raised for funding of future grants. The deadline is August 1st, and there is an informational webinar on May 27th for any community that's interested in learning more about how they can apply. In fact, I was very heartened, Stephen, that we had 70 departments attend the webinar for the first round. Uh, the funding was only sufficient to grant uh, five grants in the first round. But now that more money has been raised in the second round, um, I am hopeful that many departments will have an opportunity to try out their ideas with some grant funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, uh, Terry, uh, it was really great to hear from you about uh, your experiences. Let's go to Susan in Birmingham. Susan, welcome to the show. Hi. First, I want to say I really appreciate Terry's call because it's something we all know, but it's the first time I've ever heard an officer admit it. Um, my my question or my comment is, what about the notion of it's not the lack of training, but the quality and character of the people that are hired in the first place? Thank you. Hmm. Uh, what about hiring, uh, Barb? Uh, is is a change in the way that departments hire one of the things that uh, that this initiative might address? Uh, you know, it's certainly something that one of the grantees could explore if that's where they choose to, uh, to focus. Um, hiring is challenging in police departments, again, because of the way we fund our police departments. You know, in Detroit, uh, police officers who work in incredibly dangerous situations with Difficult hours are paid, you know, around thirty thousand dollars a year. That's that's a tough 
sell for somebody who wants to protect and serve their community. And so um, there is there is training. We actually have, I think, in Michigan, a pretty good training program and pretty good standards through our Michigan um, uh, Law Enforcement Standards Commission that uh, has some pretty good training standards to begin with. But I think, you know, you get what you pay for. And if you want to have a professional police service, you need to pay people commensurate with the demands that you put on them. So I would, for one, love to see police officers make higher salaries than they do right now. I think that would be a way to attract and retain some really good people who want to serve their communities. Hmm. Okay, uh, Barb McQuaid, U uh, of M Law professor and former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District here in Michigan. It's always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks very much for joining us to talk about this initiative. Thanks very much, Stephen. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our series of conversations with writers who are working on the Atlantic Magazine's Inheritance Project. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Annette Gordon-Reed is going to join me to talk about her piece, which details the little-known history of Africans in America before the slave trade started in 1619. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Today. 